The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Denise Schull. Um, Denise, we'll get into trading and psychology, but I want you to introduce yourself here to the audience. Who are you? How'd you get interested in markets, in the let's call it behavioral psychology coaching side of markets, and what are you doing with Rethink Group? Yeah, thanks for having me. So, where do I even start? I was always interested in like decision making and what makes people do what they do. I started like a crazy career in IBM and then I was like, oh my God, this is so boring. I cannot go to business school and sell computers. So I went to a program at the University of Chicago, which is a design your own master's program and created something back then that called neuropsychoanalysis. And all that really means is like, how is it that human beings like have consistent behavior and consistent behavioral patterns and get themselves in the same sort of situation, which is something Freud identified as the compulsion to repeat. So I was thinking I was going to get my PhD, but I was dating this guy who was a floor trader at the options exchange. And he kept telling me I'd be a good trader. And I was like, what? Like, and I am not going down there on the floor and waving my arms with you guys that are all six inches taller than me. So as I was uh, finishing writing my thesis, he went upstairs to one of the first electronic day trading firms in Chicago. And so somehow I got swept up in that. And the next thing I knew, I was trading my own account. And to fast forward, the next thing I knew, I was moving to New York to run a trading desk. And the whole neuropsychoanalysis thing, thing became like a, you know, like a side thing. So... In 2003, someone wanted to publish my master's thesis. And I was like, you can't do it. Like, it's old. Like, And I agreed to update it. And the science was showing in 2003, so that's 19 years ago, that we have to have emotion to make a decision. And I was like, well, damn. If we have to have emotion to make a decision, everything you read about investing and trading psychology is wrong. So I basically just started talking about it and people just starting wanting to know more. I continued to trade until 2009 when I was on jury duty for a long time. And then like, I was con- contracted to write my first book, Market Mind Games. And I, like, I'm here talking to you today because what I said resonated with a lot of people. I mean, there's a lot of people who think I'm the crazy woman who talks about emotions and trading, but it resonated with enough people and ended up helping people this different view of how the brain really interacts with the market. So Rethink is just my consulting company. I have a couple former clients who are also now coaches. And we do mainly psychology risk management consulting with hedge funds and institutional investors. Although we have a whole cadre of clients across the trading spectrum as well as like I have a music producer and art gallery owner, you know, across the business spectrum. So that's how I got here. And What's the connection with billions? <laughs> you know, I got to ask that question. Yeah, yeah, everybody has to ask that question. Well, you know, the thing that people know is I sued them and lost. And I'll just say this straight up. It's corrupt. And I don't mind saying that. But what actually happened is Andrew Ross Sorkin wrote the pilot for that show. And he used my book. I didn't know it. Like Wendy's from Ohio. I'm from Ohio. Her first line in the show is my line, my first coaching lines in my book. Like he used me. And he had interviewed me on Squawk Box when my book came out in 2012. 
So then he calls me and asks me to help. I didn't know anything about it. This was 2015. He calls me and asks me to help her. And I'm thinking I'm going to have a glass of wine with her. Like it turns into this whole thing in the writer's room. She's not even there. I'm like, wait a minute. I've been baited and switched. So in that conversation with Brian Koppelman, who's really the the showrunner on Billions, I tell him that Market Mind Games is written as a fictional book. Because I wrote it in this fictional envelope to try to make it easy for different people of different trading skills to relate to, like, you know, to make it good for a professional portfolio manager and good for a a new day trader. And you, if you're reading it through a story, you can understand that better than, you know, think I'm talking up or down to you. When I tell Brian Koppelman that Market Mind Games is a fictional book, I mean, if his skull could have blown off, it would have. He's like, what? Wait, how can it be? It's a trading psychology book. That's a self-help book. That can't be fiction. And I'm like, why is he freaking out? Well, they had already asked me to work in marketing and to sign a contract. And basically he escorted me out, didn't speak to me. I never heard from them again. All my CNBC contacts stopped talking to me. And I, found, I realized later that my book written as a fictional book further exposed him to copyright. And that's complicated why that is. But if it's in fiction, you have more copyright exposure. And he'd already been sued for rounders. And he didn't want to be sued again. And so, yeah, that's what happened. And I sued them and I lost. And, you know, we could go into why and how it was corrupt, but that's probably more than anybody needs to know. Yeah, yeah no, and, and, and for those <laughs> I shared at the top of this, the, the book Market Mind Games, which has some great reviews available on Amazon, if any of you want to um, check that out. Okay, so let, let's go back to, so effectively you're, 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 you're talking about psychology, behavior, trying to help traders, you've done work with hedge fund managers to help them through their own demons, which the market has a funny way of bringing to the forefront. How much of success from your experience in trading and with those that you've inter- interacted with, how much of it is psychology versus biology, right? Because I think that there is an element of temperament that relates to how one's actual physical characteristics are versus their mental state. Well, so first of all, I'm going to say two things. Like your biology matters in that, like, have you had enough sleep? you know, do you feel reasonably energetic or like, are you, you know, fatigued and tired? But to me, biology is psychology. Psychology is biology. That was the basic premise of my master's thesis. If we have a consistent personality and if we make the same types of mistakes over and over where we feel like this is our story, all those things have to be in your brain biology as a template. So that's what I set out to research in 1994. How, how does the biology of a human being develop, you know, neurobiology specifically, but it doesn't matter, such that we have consistent personality patterns and consistent patterns of mistakes. So they're one in the same to me. And maybe you can, we can refine the question a bit. And then yeah, I can... no, no, and, 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 and yeah, I'll give you an example. So I've seen studies and I've referenced this before that, and, and I'm sure you probably have seen similar things that, for example, female hedge fund managers tend to be much better in terms of performing against the market than male hedge fund managers. And one of the arguments that's out there is that maybe there's an element of different perceptions around risk-taking or risk-seeking behavior, and males might be more likely to blow up their accounts because of testosterone or because of the way that they think about and perceive risk versus women who end up end up having better performance and results. So that, that's sort of where I'm going with it, sort of the – Maybe some uh, distinctions okay. as far as how how the the physical aspects of perception of risk might impact results, so to speak. Yeah. So I'm going to go to the baseline of human perception, and like this is the thing that everyone needs to understand to to make more money, basically, or to do anything better. The latest brain science says that we are always predicting, like everybody, you're predicting the next words that are coming out of my mouth right now. By the way, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain is the book if you just want to understand the basic idea of you're always predicting. But more importantly, you're predicting a future emotion. That's called anticipatory affect. That's Brian Knudsen at Stanford and other people, but he's the, he's the core of like showing at every level of the brain how we're always predicting how anything is going to impact us in terms of a future emotion, how we're going to feel. And at its very core, it's like, are we going to be safe or not? Like, are, you know, is everything going to be okay or everything not going to be okay? 
Well, what it appears is that, you know, men are more competitive in certain sorts, or at least overtly and consciously, you know, theoretically. Why? Because they had to compete, you know, to kill the wildebeest at one point. And so men seem to predict like that something bad's going to happen if they don't keep up with or better the other men. And therefore, they react to the threat of of future danger or psychologically now, future embarrassment, fear of future regret. So regret has shown to be the most motivating psychological factor for human beings. And the fear of future regret, meaning I could have done this, but I didn't, you know, I could have worked a little harder. I could have made the position a little bigger. I could have, I could have, I could have, could have, could have to beat the guy next to me. Women conversely are, you know, and I'm, I'm generalizing and I don't, I don't spend a lot of time in this space, but if you take the basic principles of always predicting future safety and what creates future safety, generally speaking, for men, it's winning in the competition. And for women, it's like cooperating in the group. So men have more innate reaction to I need to win than women do. So women don't get caught up in this fear of future regret as much, which most people experience as fear of missing out. And that's the underlying, like, they can go, you know what, I don't care if, I don't care if Denise down the street is, you know, whatever, huge, whatever. I don't care what she does. And men care. Which is interesting, right? Because it's that, it's that need to win that maybe results in that excess of risk taking, right? It's, it's, I, I, I don't know if anybody's ever done a study on this, but I would suspect that men care more about quote unquote beating the market than, than women. Exactly. Well, because the market's, what is the market? The market's all the other guys on the field, you know, you know, or all the other guys in the race psychologically. And, right, and women, exactly. you know, women want to like cooperate and keep their family safe. And so they say, what do I need to do to be safe? I don't care what the people down the street do to be safe. I just want my tribe to be safe, my group to be safe. Men believe that the way to be safe is to beat the other guy. I mean, if you just go back, you know, you go back, like, how would this have developed, like, evolutionarily? And then, test. I mean, hormones support these things, Right. Right, right, exactly right. Okay, so I want to relate that to two emotions or two ways that people tend to respond to the outside world in communication: arrogance and humility. Um, uh-huh. So you made this you made this point that you need to have emotion for a decision. It's hard to take a decision if you're humble because then you're always weighing the possibility that that decision is wrong. Whereas if you're arrogant, presumably you're going to be more confident in a decision you're taking. Talk through how those two factor into the investment decision-making process. Well, the first thing I'm going to say is, you know, people generally have characterological or patterned reactions, to those kinds of emotions. So I have a client, he, he runs a hedge fund and a mutual fund and one of those huge trillion dollar asset managers. He also runs a fund, a separate fund where the institutional investors said, take whatever risk you want. So in the take whatever risk you want, we don't care what the volatility is. He like kills it. I mean, we're talking 40, 50, 60% a year. In the mutual fund, he does okay because he puts on like long-term equity positions. In the hedge fund, which is primary vehicle that he's supposed to be investing slash trading in, he doesn't do as well as he should do. Why? Because he always second guesses himself. Why does he always second guess himself? He grew up uh, in a situation where he did a lot of work for his grandfather, who was super critical. And it didn't matter what he did. It seemed like the grandfather was well-meaning, like trying to teach his grandson like how to do things better, but it didn't matter. It was never, ever, ever good enough. So any perception he ever has, he's like, what am I missing? I, m- I must be wrong about it. And his actual like market analysis, perception, prediction is killer, which is how he makes the 40, 50, 60% in the, you know, take whatever risk we don't care fund. But in his main fund, he's always reenacting that like something, I must be missing something. I have other people who have, you know, growing up stories where everything went well, basically. I mean, to be very generic. 
you know, and they have this hyper belief in themselves and they will take too much risk at the wrong time. Now, there is also the hyper belief in oneself that can be covering up fundamental insecurity. Usually when that's the case, and I really am, you know, this is very broad brush, but if someone's, like I had a client who acted crazy overconfident. He was completely the opposite. But his crazy overconfident was an attempt to keep, he was the youngest of four boys and it was an attempt to keep up with his older brothers. And he would jump from thing to thing and be sure that it was going to work. And, you know, more times than not, it didn't. He wouldn't recognize that he was trying to keep up with his older brothers. I had another client who would get bigger when things were going wrong. And I mean, like huge, like he could just, you know, it's going against him and he was just absolutely sure. And we figured out like he was six four, two hundred and forty 240 pounds rugby player in Europe. Like he was just using his rugby approach to life to handle his positions. And once we, we invoke, he had two young daughters at the time, two and four. And I was like, well, I know you wrestle with them. I know you play with them. Like, and when you play with them, obviously you don't use your rugby skills because you would kill them. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, so bring that feeling in of playing with your daughters to how you're going to manage the size of a trade. And that basically, so we were changing how he felt. We were bringing a feeling from another realm into his position sizing. And that enabled him to stop the habit of getting too big when things were going wrong. Although you know, that's interesting because I've made this point before. Sometimes when you're in a drawdown and lagging, the best thing to do actually is to double down or even go into the bigger laggard to get a meaner version catch up. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that's necessarily sort of an irrational way of thinking about it. I mean, arguably risk is is lower actually when you're in a drawdown because you've already got the drawdown or at least a big, big chunk of it. Well, I mean, that's one of those sort of trading aphorisms, right? That like, it, like you're right. Like there's no absolute answer to do you add to a loser or do you not add to a loser? Like, you know, it depends on the way you understand the market. It depends on like your time frame. It depends on your reasons. Like the problem comes in when someone plans, you know, to take a loss at a certain point. And then it gets to that point or beyond, and then they decide it's a good idea to add. So it's in the specifics of of how a person thinks it's best to interact with the market. I mean, it's surely true that if you like something and you're in for the long term, like, and it goes on sale, well, that's generally an opportunity. Now, but having said that, that, like, that's a perfect example of why it is so, why trading is so hard. Why trading and investing are literally the hardest mental game on the planet. They're unlike anything else, anything else. They're not like sports. They're not like the military. It is a very unique problem to the human brain. And literally, because when something pulls back, for example, this is an example of how like it's completely ambiguous. Like, is that does this mean I'm wrong and I should get out, or is this an opportunity? And the brain knows that there's no absolute answer to that. Like, and so you have to come up with some set of lenses, you know, binoculars that you view this game through and that you then believe in. Because like you could add to something that's on sale and you're going to be fine with it because you clearly believe that that can work over time. If someone's been taught they shouldn't do that, and then they try to do it. They don't really believe it. So what? They're predicting less future safety. They are feeling more risk because they don't really have the confidence conviction in this way to play the game. So then what happens? They maybe add and then they get out of the whole thing because they don't have a viewpoint, a set of lens that lets them see the game that way. No, no, that's good. That's good. And, and that, that, that actually leads me to something which I I think is maybe an interesting direction. So part of psychology relates to, again, arrogance and humility. I'd argue that also relates to whether one is a discretionary trader or a quant-based, rules-based trader. Now, I'm going to argue that if somebody's a quant, they're probably approaching the markets more from the standpoint of humility because they're basically then saying, I don't trust my 
natural instincts around markets. So I'm going to follow this rules-based approach, these signals, these different metrics, and be disciplined and create strategy. Whereas, you know, if you're discretionary, you almost have to have the mindset that you can beat the market, right? That it's not something that it's more based on on art than than science. Talk about just in terms of the different personalities you've come across in your career, how quants view the market versus, you know, more discretionary sort of gut feeling type of traders. Well, I first think, you know, the tendency towards humility or arrogance is personality driven. And you have your tendency towards humility or arrogance before you ever encounter the market. And then that's going to play out however you do it. So years ago, I got involved in something called Battle of the Quants. And I was on the quant speaking circuit for from like 2007 to 2011 or 12, around the time my book came out. And I, I did a lot of speaking. I did a lot of panels with quants. I became friends with a lot of them. I'm still friends with a woman who runs Andrew Lowe's uh, research. For, and for those who don't know, Andrew Lowe is a big quant from MIT. All due respect. <laughs> One night, I took six of the quants out who were going to be on my panel and bought them a couple of drinks. And I start hearing about like recalibrating our models. And I'm like, what? And they start talking about how often they, I'm using recalibrate, I'm doing air quotes. And it's like, what? And I'm like, wait a minute. This is starting to sound like discretionary trading with a robotic arm. Oh, I love this. No, no, this I, I, you're hitting on something. I always think that point. It's like, this is the, the problem that people have. They want to over-optimize. They want to chase optimization. So if their model isn't working in a particular cycle, they start tweaking. And now exactly. once you start tweaking, it totally undoes all your prior backtesting. And, and, and the other problem is in that mindset, the implication there of tweaking a model to the cycle you're in is, one, that the cycle continues, two, that it's not an anomaly, right? And, and that you can ultimately create a perfect strategy that will never have right. a cycle where it hurts it. Right, right, right. I mean, the first thing about, you know, trading through a model is a model always has some discretionary factor in it. If nothing else, it's usually implied volatility. You, like people who create, they put in there, like, what is the expected volatility? Well, that's a discretionary decision. Now, yeah, maybe you, you know, analyze X amount of data to come up with your implied volatility, but then what's X? Like, was it three months? Was it three years? Was it three decades? Like, so like embedded in a systematic strategy are quantitative decisions, like, or I mean, qualitative decisions. So then people could go in and, and change them. So I think I mean, I don't think that you can generalize quant, arrogance, discretionary humility. I think it's personality driven and you have that personality before you ever know what those two things mean. But then I think, sure, there are quantitative strategies that's been, been crazy su successful. I mean, one of my favorite books is The Man Who Solved the Markets about Jim Simons or Simmons. I can never keep it straight. Like, but you look at what they did at Renaissance Technology and they basically you know, analyzed all the market data that's ever existed in history and created a belief that they could trade off the patterns they found. And then as they themselves say, they are right 50.75% of the time, less than 51% of the time. But, you know, if you bet billions and billions and billions of dollars, it's slightly over 50%, you make 60% of your returns. They believe it because they did the analysis. You read the book and they've had times where they weren't making money and they don't necessarily believe it. So it, it does come down to does, does one have a system that resonates with them that they believe in that therefore then they execute on? And it, whether execute is get out where they planned or leave the algorithm run. Right. And when you're managing other people's money, as you know, you can have the belief in it, but because of short-termism, your underlying investors may not have the belief in it. How many <laughs> how many investors could have made a killing from shorting from from the housing crash, you know, post 06 that simply couldn't wait it out until 08? Right. Right. I mean that's that's the the dynamic, I think, which is which is challenging. And also there's a degree of luck also with that too, right? So I've made this joke before. It's like imagine launching an equity fund in 2008. I mean, the cycle's against you. You might have the greatest equity alpha generating strategy in the world, but you know you can't necessarily foresee that you have Lehman, you know, within months of you launching. But so, so you know, you have to going back to emotions, right? So and the doubling down of, of a thesis, you have to you have to almost have a little bit of a, a maybe narcissistic is not the right word, but almost 
overconfident belief in what you've created, even when there's underlying investors that don't believe in it in the short term, to stick it out, right? And to be disciplined. And that's a really hard thing psychologically for anybody in the industry managing money to do. Yeah. I mean, it it comes back to that belief in the lens that you understand the market through. Like that you, you know, like you compare compare how you feel about playing a sport that you're decent at or any, you know, doing anything that you're reasonably good at. Like whatever that is for any of us, like we know we can do that thing, right? Like I know I can ski. I know I can speak in public. You know, don't ask me to do calculus, but you know, somebody else is going to know they can play golf well, you know, or know they can do calculus well. Like you need that feeling in, in the lens you view the market through. But people don't stop to say, how do I get that feeling? Like, or which parts of my lens make me nervous because they think they're not supposed to pay any attention to their emotion. So they don't analyze the, like they don't analyze that, even that little feeling that tells them they haven't resolved kind of this aspect of their market system, whatever that is, like their position sizing, their exit strategies, you know, their time frame. They don't even realize that they don't completely believe in it. And going through a process where you do that and get something that you believe in. I mean, I, I guess because of my psychology background, used to do this when I was just trading full time. I'd sit down on a Saturday afternoon and write, like, how is the market working? Like in essay form, not in numbers. Like what's really happening here? Which, by the way, what the brain research shows is the best traders are using what's called theory of mind. We all have the facility for theory of mind. What is theory of mind? You have a theory of another person's mind. You have a theory of the market's mind. What that means is using people prediction. Because this is another point about why the market's so hard. Like the numbers, the probabilities we create are an overlay to give us a lens, to give us a clue into how are other people reacting to the price movement. And if you could know that, if you could know the general perception of Apple a year from now, you'd know what the trade was. That's the answer you're going for, but people don't realize that's the answer they're going for. We're all actually good at that. I mean, people on the autism spectrum are less good at it, but everybody has theory of mind. And you can amplify your, your own theory of mind abilities, which is predicting other market participants, if you consciously go about doing that. And now I don't remember what I was answering to get me off on that point. But. And all good. Just for, for the remaining guys, minutes here, everybody, please make sure you follow Denise Schill. And if you are curious, check out Market Mind Games on Amazon. Let's go to a question. Yeah, yeah. I totally have. I've been invited in some cases. It's not anything I've pursued, but I'm actually actually fascinated with the board mind too. But like, because in my like, all I do is a, is is explain the science of human perception and judgment which it's not that I'm so brilliant. It's just that I was interested and was willing to follow the science and like I'm not stuck in the flat earth view of, of human perception and judgment. Every human being is always predicting a future emotion. And when you understand any behavior through that, you can solve anything. Like, so I will say that I can solve any problem. It's not because I'm a genius. It's because I was willing to know what the latest science is. So like in a board, like what are people predicting emotionally for themselves and for the company? It's going to be mostly about themselves, but they don't even know it. So like when you start to unpack any situation or situation with conflict and you understand underlying what people are predicting, like you, you have a whole new world. I mean, really flat earth to round earth of what you can do with your own behavior and other people's behavior. So, <laughs> Yes. It's really actually not that complicated. That's the, uh, everyone thinks it's such a big mystery and how do you influence people or how do you influence yourself to trade better? If you, I mean, like, it's actually not that complicated. It's really not. Like you are predicting a future emotion. Done. Start knowing what that is and why you're predicting that. And what part of that is about the problem at hand and what part of it's about you. Because mostly it's going to be about you when you need it to be the problem at hand and you don't even know this is happening. I want to focus on on impulse for a moment because I think, that's an interesting <laughs> dynamic of of traders sort of you know traders getting impulsive trying to 
buy or sell and maybe over trading based on you know some discretionary view on short term movements in markets. I'm going to presume that the best trader hedge fund managers that you've come across probably do have some degree of impulse control, right? Because otherwise they they might just be flailing around and and losing money from just making all the wrong moves based on noise in the moment. But how how does one control Im- impulse to trade when there's so many different stimuli around us, whether it's Twitter or CNBC or all these other places, there's this constant uh, flow of information that makes people want to take an action. Well, you got you to first change your opinion about your feelings and emotions, and then you got to decide that you're going to learn about them, analyze them, understand them, and you're going to pick the action that gets you the future feeling that you want. So in practicality, that's like, is this feeling intuition, which is just like, it's not intuition. We don't have time for that. But like intuition is unconscious pattern recognition of expertise. Like anything that you know how to do, you develop intuition. You develop a sense for how to do the thing more quickly. So you have to have a strategy of analyzing your own feelings and emotions to know which ones are about the market and which ones are about you. So which ones are telling you that price is going to move in this way over your period of time based on your understanding of how markets move versus which ones are about, you know, juicing your P&L or saving your P&L or looking smart or not being embarrassed. And so if you use that North Star of what's the future feeling I'm predicting, like how much is about me versus how much is actually about the market, if I act on the one that's about me, what will it get me? And if I act on the one it's about the market, what will it get me? But being more aware of your feelings and emotions, being able to articulate what they are and attribute them to their accurate source, then you're able to act on the intuition and avoid the impulse way more than you are if you just try to use your intellect to cause yourself to be disciplined, which is what everybody's been telling everybody to do for the you know millennia. Yeah, I think, I think the problem is it, it's, it's hard to use your intellect when when you're in a world of system one reacting, right? And especially when it comes to likes and retweets and and everybody basically taking on a more extreme view that everyone else has because that's what gets engagement. And I'd argue that 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 makes us more lizard-like in the way that we approach things than more uh, intellectual as humans, right? So it's just hard to, I think, get people to understand that they have to be independent in their thought on markets while trying to absorb other people's thoughts and and not necessarily agree with the other people's thoughts. Well, if you understand that being popular or, you know, to, to summarize tweets and retweets and that being liked actually under deep down inside, the future feeling is that you're safe. Like that's really what's going on. The you'll be safe because the crowd will take care of you because you're valuable to the crowd. If you understand that you're, you know, being part of the crowd, being liked by the crowd is actually creating future safety for you, a feeling of comfort in the future versus like, what's the thing you want? You don't, you don't actually consciously care about the crowd liking you and being safe in the future. Like you, you, but your psyche does, because like your brain's job is to keep you alive. And that's an aspect of keeping you alive. So, but like you have a plan, I'm you, the generic you, you know, I want to do these things in order to make this money, in order to create safety for myself and my family. Well, you can choose. When you understand that these future emotions, predictions of them are going on, you can choose the one that gets you the thing you value more. But you don't know what's going on. Like, forgive me for this, and maybe there's going to be, I don't believe in in Daniel Kahneman. I don't believe in cognitive behavioral. It's not the way the brain works. I'm sorry, but they're wrong. Like, we can forget system one and two. And I don't mean to offend you, Michael. We can forget the lizard brain. It's not what the latest neuroscience says. It's one integrated brain, like thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensations that happen throughout the brain. Yes, there's parts of the brain that are a little more active with certain kinds of things like theory of mind, but that whole viewpoint is a flat earth viewpoint. Like what drives behavior is how people feel. What makes it, if you did not have an emotion which is usually confidence. You can't decide what day to go to the doctor on. You can't decide what shirt to wear because you have no feeling about what's right or appropriate. So that completely blows up the cognitive behavioral, I think and then I behave view of your own behavior. And 
while blowing it up, it gives you this whole other world of options to behave in the way that gets you more of what you want. No, no, no. That's, uh, <laughs> I'll go to Q in a second, but it's, it's, it's like um, I, I'm reminded of this uh, discussion back in, I don't know, 08, 09 with, between Nassim Taleb and Daniel Kahneman. And Nassim Taleb argued that you know, one of the reasons that you had the great financial crisis was because of an over-reliance on models. And Daniel Kahneman's response was, well, models are what create the, the confidence to create some action. So you need to have some models in life to have some confidence. You have to anchor onto something in the past. Whereas Taleb is more on the on the idea of you know live with uncertainty and take decisions within that. It, it's just interesting to think through how how people there's one set of people that are very confident without having real knowledge behind their confidence, and they may end up being rewarded in that. And there's another set of co- people that need to have that historical data set to make a decision, but uh, and that creates the confidence, the emotion, but that doesn't mean they're guaranteed to do well either. Right. I mean, we're all coming from the same place, I think, from that thing. Well, the brain is always using its models of what it's experienced, its models of the past to predict what will happen. Always. Like, that's how it does it. You know, you're you're you maybe you're conceived, but you're certainly born and you start to understand, like, where you fit in the world and what your role is and how the world works. And you come up with models in your head. Like we're taught things, you know, gravity or two plus two equals four, which by the way, two plus two equals four isn't even as precise. Like it's done in different ways in the brain, depending on what language you first learn, which just goes to show how malleable the human brain is. But like, we're, we're always working on models. The, the misunderstanding of like, take the financial crisis, like, you know, you figured that a greater percentage or a certain percentage of higher credit mortgages would offset the lower percent, you know, the the greater percentage of of lower credit. You also made assumptions about like the stability of interest rates and whatnot. Like it was just a faulty model. I mean, I quoted Taleb a lot in the beginning of Market Mind Games because he does get that you do, you do have to, well, you'll do better if you learn to live with the uncertainty. Learning to live with the uncertainty is getting more comfortable with the feelings of insecurity that it gives you. As opposed to if you misunderstand the game and think it's just a numbers game and that you can overlay like analysis of the past for probabilities, that's not a a bad thing to do. I'm not saying it's worthless, but you've got to understand it's only a clue. It's not the actual answer to what's going to happen. And you have to be able, back to the quants recalibrating, like on some level saying, okay, this is my model. This is what my model produces. This is the likelihoods that my model is saying. But factors within that model are going to change. You know, it's like sports, uh, you know, athlete analysis. You know, they do this, you know, all these analytics in football and baseball now. But have the analytics gotten them what they want? No, because the athlete statistics don't necessarily absolutely predict how the athlete's going to perform in changing circumstances. So that... Well, and, and in the small sample, right? I mean, I think that's also the other thing. It's, you, you, you know, we, I always make that point. We live in the small sample, which means that you can rely on historical relationships, which on average would hold, but in any small sample of time wouldn't. Well, that's the, that was the brilliance of Rentech to go. I mean, they like analyze market data from like the year 12,000, like every piece of market data they could ever get. They poured into those computers to say, like, what are the patterns? So, like, one of the patterns they came up with is stocks that gap down in the morning are likely to fill the gap. Well, damn, I knew that as a discretionary trader in 1995 in Chicago. I just didn't apply, like, bazillion amounts of computing power to prove it and trade billions of dollars based on it. Like, but they, well, they created confidence. So, yeah, small samples are a problem. And people work on small samples all the time. I mean, the fundamental thing that people do where they take their self-image and they interject it into their trade is like the smallest sample ever, right? Like that's their own personal experience, like imputed into its relationship with the market. Like that's nothing, that's what I mean. Know if your feeling is about you and your expectation of like how things turn out for you based on all the models that you have from all of your life, or is it about the other people in the market and how they're reacting? You want it, you know, you always want to be focused on solving the actual problem. 
But people are often solving the problem of themselves versus the problem of what the other people are going to do with the price. When then you're right back at intuition versus impulse. Intuition is going to be about solving you. I mean, intuition is going to be about solving the market. Impulse is going to be about solving you. You're one, you know, you're sort of one data set, if you will. Well, I certainly think, you know, and again, I'm using air quotes, counseling framework applies to understanding trading behavior. So if you weren't here, so I had this background in neuropsychoanalysis, and then I learned you had to have emotion to make a decision. And when I first started coaching traders, because people called, it was just around the emotions of trading, you know, like fear of missing out, you know, which is fear of future regrets, oftentimes fear of being wrong and being embarrassed. Like it was just about the sort of conscious emotions. And then I started seeing that people were interacting with the prices as if the prices, well, they are an authority figure, but they were reacting to their models of authority figures. So like in a counseling situation, right, you're typically bringing that out, like helping people see that what they're reacting to, the feelings they're having, the actions they take are about something else, right? Well, I started to see how like price action for many men is their father. Like, and they are reacting to the authority figure of their father, either trying to please him, trying to prove they're better than him, you know, like, and you can analyze anybody's trading behavior through that, like, what's their view of where they fit in the world, which is essentially their self-image, who they are and how they fit in the world. Now, I don't think I answered part of your question. <laughs> well, the, I mean, you got to remember the fundamental game is predicting how other people are going to react. So that's an art because there's no absolute to how people will react. I mean, just take, you know, name an S&P number, S&P 4000. What does it mean now? Well, it means something different than when we were at S&P 4250. It's all context driven. So like you have to understand the context. It's, it, it, it's one of the few things in the world. I mean, everything's context driven, but markets are so clearly context driven. Like, and it's an, art to keep up with the context. You can use some science, i.e. math, or even the science of human perception, like in how people react to things. But at the end of the day, it's absolutely an art because it's you're betting on other people's changing perceptions in a, in a completely uncertain world where any one thing, has, there's nothing that has any absolute meaning in markets and trading, nothing. It's all relative to what came before. You, you, you said something which I think has made me smile. As you, as you said, you said the authority figure for most people is their father. And I'd argue in the context of markets, the authority figure is Papa Powell uh, <laughs> in the way with the Federal Reserve here. At and least at the moment. And well, exactly right. It's funny because I put out a, a piece on the lead lag report that it's funny how people will latch on to everything that Papa Powell is saying when if you just do a very rudimentary look at prior Fed forecasts, they can't tell the future better than anybody else. So people use this line constantly that the Fed is going to keep raising rates until they break something, or uh, that the authority figure is telling you he's going to raise rates, so he's going to keep on raising rates. But time and time again, we've seen that what the authority figure says that we latch onto isn't necessarily going to be a guaranteed future outcome. And even using this past week as an example, just yeah, the one of the reasons people the people have said the stock market sold off is because Powell came out was more hawkish in his testimony. Yet the asset classes which are much more sensitive to the Fed, the dollar, round trip relative to when Powell started speaking, emerging markets, you know, uh, uh, end of the week higher that should be more sensitive to the to Papa Powell's words. That context seems to be lost because people get stuck in the emotion of the here and now and the narrative that's being thrown at them by. Fintwit by traditional media, and I go back to it, it. It I find it challenging as somebody who's trying to communicate from the lens that I look at to to counter the emotions of the crowd, which is seeking to your point that safety because everyone's thinking the same way. I mean, I have a client at a name brand hedge fund within the hedge fund world who used to be very quantitative. He's still fundamentally quantitative, but he's very much about relying on his intuition. So. On Tuesday, he said, this is what 
their announcement's going to say. And he was pretty close to their announcement. He said, then Powell's going to start talking and he's going to screw it up and he's going to give a counter message. <laughs> so I'm like, yesterday, I talked to him twice a week. I was like, yesterday, I'm like, well, you pretty dead on there. Yeah, no, the, the point is, it's, you know, it, it, it's the context is important. I keep going back to you. you have to always look for inconsistencies across the market, right? This is the first time you've got a more hawkish tone, or at least the perception is that, but the dollar is actually not responding the way it has in the past, which right. means the equity market could be wrong in the initial reaction. But again, it's like, this is ultimately all about timeframes, you know, and, and I, I, I tease that as the line, which you liked, right? You, you know you're right when the counter argument is an insult. I want to hear your thoughts on the counter emotion from other analysts, other traders. You mentioned the competitive nature of this industry. I often find that when people go out of their way not to rationally debate you with counter analysis and facts, that rather they just insult you, that that means their viewpoint is so entrenched and their positions are so entrenched that they can't see the other side, so they just resort to trying to hurt you personally. How does one shield themselves from that? Because <laughs> that's really hard. i got to imagine hedge fund managers are talking to other hedge fund managers, and they're probably all yelling and fighting with each other. And you know that competitive nature then makes it uh, very toxic and maybe throws one's decision-making process off or maybe make them believe more that they're going to be right. So the, the, like, I can summarize this whole talk into you know the strategy of asking yourself, what am I feeling and why am I feeling it, and getting both right. And that's an easy sentence for me to say, and it's an easy sentence for people to basically comprehend. I mean, there's a lot of people who've been taught so to ignore their emotions that even that sentence is a little bit difficult. But, you know, what am I feeling and really why am I feeling it? If you get the answer right, most of the dumb shit that bothers you won't bother you because you end up realizing that like, yeah, you feel kind of attacked by someone who's insulting you and, you know, attacked it makes you mad. And underneath, it's hurtful. Like, why are they doing this to me? And underneath that is like, is this some kind of threat? If this person has this opinion of me, does this create some sort of future threat? But if you understand that, you know, you're always predicting a future emotion and, and the baseline is, am I safe or am I not safe? Like, and you realize it makes you feel momentarily like it's a threat. This is where your cognition actually does come in. When you look at that straight up, you realize, you know, some idiotic Yahoo criticizing you on whatever is actually no real threat to you. <laughs> it's a lot easier to not worry about it or a lot easier to mute them or a lot easier to get over it because you're, you're like understanding the feelings it's creating. And again, sort of which are about you and which are about reality. In that case, you know, reality being whatever you're your business or your public standing, not markets. But, you know, I had somebody, I tweeted something the other day about like the process of creating a lens and confidence. And you know, someone replied, you don't need any of that. You just need a system and to follow the rules. <laughs> you know, and it was easy annoying. Yeah. Easy well, like a human being can't do it. You can't yeah. do it. You can't do it. Your brain, your brain has an uncertainty signal. So like you detect that the market is fundamentally uncertain. Like, and it says, okay, try to, try to resolve the uncertainty. Like that uncertainty signal talks to you in a feeling. That's why like people don't trade their plan all the time, right? Like they, you know, plan the trade, trade the plan and then people can't do it. And then they feel guilty and people harangue them about discipline, but it's actually because the brain has an uncertainty signal and it's provoking you to create certainty and doing something different than your plan makes you feel more certain for a moment. That's why you, you don't do the thing you plan to do. But also because you don't know that you're predicting a future feeling and that's really driving you. But like these things exist in a pyramid. And the first is you just want to resolve the, like, the discomfort of uncertainty. Taleb is right. Get a lot more comfortable with it. Like learn to tolerate it. Like embrace it. Like you can. You can. You, and you're starting then with what the real like problem is. Like you're, you're in the actual game if you're emotionally owning the uncertainty of it. And you're you're gonna you're gonna make better people predictions from that mental state than from a, like this is the way it works and this is my you know statistical overlay and I'm just gonna do it. Let's do one more question. I got everybody here. Please make sure you follow Denise show. Yeah. So the first is set up your energy. Like you don't have to be in front of the screen. I, I thought you were say the first thing is to hire you. Is, is really the <laughs> the, the right <laughs> answer, right? Well, there is hire. We think. 
I generally run a waiting list, but, but uh, yeah, I tend not to do that kind of thing. Um, the first is set up your energy, like meaning make sure that you get enough sleep, make sure that you get enough breaks, make sure that you get away from the screen, make sure when you are frustrated and aggravated, like you go work out to like, you know, the second is develop a strategy for knowing what you're feeling and why, and then develop knowledge about how to choose the feelings that are intuition, acting on the feelings that are intuition versus impulse. So practically putting all of your feelings into words, getting more words for feelings. Literally, there are multiple pieces of research that show the more a trader understands their bodily sensations, which is called interoception, which is the baseline of senses, feelings, and emotions, the more money they make, the longer they last in the market. The more a portfolio manager can differentiate amongst their negative emotions, the more money they make. So there's a, like everybody basically can get more conversant in words related to the physical sensations that we would call feelings and emotions. So what? So that you can better articulate what am I feeling and why. And in the what, you can say, okay, how much is this? Like, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to tell my wife I lost money. I don't want to be wrong. Versus what's my intuitive voice telling me? Like, my intuitive voice is telling me is this trade's not working and I should just grit my teeth and take the loss because overall, I'm going to feel better in the future. So it's a process of learning to be what's called emotionally granular. And like I have clients, like I will, I first start with a client at a hedge fund. I tell them to write down every single word for emotion that they possibly can, the emotions of investing and trading. And some of them, most of the words are behavioral or cognitive. And we get them to like all of the emotions. And then we start to categorize them. So that what? You can better answer what am I feeling and why. So you can, you got to change your mind on your viewpoint of behavior. You got to change your mind on your viewpoint of emotions. Like the science says the earth is round, that the mind is round, the mind works on emotion. You know, the world still believes that the science of behavior is you work on cognition and that's the flat earth. You got to change your mind first and then you got to like work with it. And I mean, it's like developing, it's a physical skill, right? It's using your cognition to understand what your body's telling you, like you're doing when you play golf or ski or any other sport. Like you have to turn that, that massive intellect to this realm of senses, feelings, and emotions and understand them as a data set. So I hope that's practical yeah. enough. Yeah, no, very good. And, and everybody, I gotta, we're going to have to wrap up the space. Everybody again, please make sure you follow Denise. Sure. Denise, this was a uh, real pleasure listening to you. Um, um, you know, this has been a, a fascinating year in terms of the way markets have behaved, but also in terms of the way that people behave relative to others yeah. behaving against each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's kind of, I think we're going to look back at this year in particular as an interesting case study on human psychology. Um, right. On a side note. But thank you, everybody. And make Thanks sure you check me. out. Uh, yeah, no, and, th- and make sure you check out Market Mind Games. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.